Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Matthew Booker, the Center's Vice President for Scholarly Programs. It's my pleasure to introduce this special series of Discovery and Inspiration episodes. Each year, the National Humanities Center welcomes up to 40 scholars from across the United States and abroad who spend their time working on scholarly projects to enhance our understanding of the human experience. Our usual Discovery and Inspiration podcasts are recorded during their year at the center as they are immersed in the research and writing process. These special episodes of the Discovery and Inspiration podcasts, however, feature National Humanities Center fellows discussing their completed projects, which have now been published. These conversations were part of the center's virtual book talk series in 2020, 21, and 2022, which were recorded originally on YouTube with a live online audience. I hope you will enjoy this fascinating conversation with one of our amazing scholars as they share insights into what their research reveals about the world we share. This evening, we're joined, we're joined rather, by Joseph Allen Boone, who grew up about two hours due west of the center in Statesville, North Carolina, and went to college nearby at Duke University before pursuing his PhD at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He began his scholarly career at Harvard and then relocated to Los Angeles to join the faculty at the University of Southern California, where he is currently Gender Studies Professor in Media and Gender and Professor of English, Comparative Literature, and Gender Studies. Joe's scholarly work exploring the novel as genre, gender and queer studies, narrative theory, and modernism has earned him fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the Stanford Humanities Center, the Rockefeller Bellagio Center, the Bogliasco Foundation, the American Council of Learned Societies, and the Huntington Library. And he was a fellow at the center in 2009 and 10 when he was researching and writing his third monograph, The Homoerotics of Orientalism. In addition to his success as a literary scholar, Joe has also branched out into other endeavors, including adapting Melville's riverboat novel, The Confidence Man, into a musical with jazz musician and composer Benjamin Boone, one of Joe's four brothers. A collection of Joe's short stories entitled Conditions of Precarity is forthcoming soon, and this past March, he published his first novel, Furnace Creek, a coming-of-age story that takes its inspiration from Charles Dickens's Great Expectations. However, unlike Dickens' Pip, who confronted life in 19th century Britain as an orphan longing to claim a place in the greater world, Joe's young hero, Newt, must navigate the repressive social and cultural conditions of life in the South in the 1960s and 70s while struggling to come to terms with his sexuality. Like award-winning novelist Viet Nguyen, I was seduced by Joe's delightful novel, and I can see why another Pulitzer Prize winner, Michael Cunningham, has praised him as a natural novelist. We are delighted to have Joe with us this evening to discuss Furnace Creek and his own multifaceted sojourn as a scholar and writer. Please join me in welcoming author Joe Boone. Joe, this, in fact, is a seductive book. It's a book that sucked me in from the very beginning with this extraordinary kind of coming of age story about this young man who is secretive. He's finding his way into the world. He has his own secrets and they become much richer and darker uh, right off the bat in your story. And we are just enmeshed in this remarkable um, story about this person and his milieu, his world, which becomes truly the world. He travels all over the world. He gains all of these remarkable skills. He's an astonishing character. Why that? Why this set of experiences for this young boy, this adolescent boy, in this particular place in the rural South, in the small town South? Great question, and I'm happy to answer that, Matt. Uh, first of all, I'd just like to thank you for having me on. This is, it's, it's a wonderful sort of deja 
the glass to see Welvin Joel was on screen, the, the white brick walls of the center. I could tell the skylights overhead. I knew exactly, you know, where he was in the building uh, because I remember my uh, year there so vividly, uh, as I'm sure many of our listeners who are past fellows do too. And I must say one of the best things about the center, uh, aside from all the library aid that we got, uh, which we all use to the, to the absolute maximum, uh, was the bonds that we formed. And this is one of those wonderful things about the center. And I wasn't paid to say this, all you guys out there listening, but there's a group of us, I'd say about seven of us who are always in touch. We had our own Zoom meetings during the pandemic. We get together at different places just I had the honor about a month ago of being the escort for one of your other uh, book speakers, Mia Bay, to the Los Angeles Festival of Books Awards ceremony because she was up for one of, you know, she was a finalist for the History Prize for her wonderful book on uh, 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 Black movement. Uh, and um, so anyway, the center has been a, a, a great home for me. They also allow me to work on that con man script a little bit on the side while I was finishing homoerotics of Orientalism at the center. Uh, so you're also responsible for some of my creative pursuits. Now, what led to my sort of uh, coming up with the character and the events that you described uh, is an interesting sort of origin question indeed. And I would like to just read my epigraph to the novel, which is from Charles Dickens, as I explain a bit the origin story of this novel. Dickens writes in what I think is one of the night of the most you know, lyrical of many sentences in Great Expectations, a novel I've taught many times. Uh, this, pause you who read this and think for a moment of the long chain of iron or gold of thorns or flower that would have never bound you, but for the formation of the first link on one memorable day. Now, my novel, like Dickens, will begin with a memorable day, but this novel too has its origins in a set of memorable days. Um, we were celebrating my parents' 50th anniversary uh, they met in Roanoke, Virginia. Uh, we did this several years ago. And during that celebration, we traveled to the little town of Rocky Mount, Virginia in the mountains, a little bit below Roanoke. Uh, and that's where I was born, spent the first seven years of my life before we moved to states. That's where my father grew up and where he and mom had their first home. And while there, we went to visit this site called Furnace Creek, down in the woods, uh, several blocks behind my cousin's house, ran this real this creek that was named after a Civil War bullet refinery that had been built on its base back in the 1860s. Now, as a kid growing up in Virginia, we would run through the woods, scamper over two lawns behind my cousin's house to reach the creek and we would play there. We would play on this heap of stones. We had no idea of its historicity uh, and what a dark history indeed that is. We were just there out in nature doing our thing. Uh, well, I saw that again as an adult uh, visiting with my parents uh, during their 50th anniversary. And I just had a, this like, oh my God, this is just like ripe for a scene in some novels. Something pivotal should happen here. And in the back of my mind, I've been thinking, you know, I've jumped all the academic hoops. I want to go back to my first love, which is writing fiction. So I've been burning with the desire to come up with a kind of novel length idea. So I go back to USC uh, and one, uh, the, you know, two days later after the anniversary celebration, in one class, I'm teaching Zadie Smith on beauty. Uh, which is her rewrite of Howard's End, the Forrester novel of 1910, where she transposes his plot, which is about class and gender, to New England, where it becomes a plot very much about, among other things, race and academics and interracial relations. Uh, in my other class, two hours later, I was teaching 
uh, great expectations. And we were beginning with chapter one, uh, uh, which begins memorably, as some of you may know, with a youngster Pip at six years old, an orphan boy on a Christmas Eve, a dreary Christmas Eve, feeling unfriended, not really loved by his, the, his older sister with whom he's living in the graveyard of the local church, looking at the graves of his parents and all of his siblings who have passed away. And he's really pondering this big question of identity. Who am I? Uh, and that who am I comes with a vengeance when the convict mag, which appears behind the gravestone, turn, picks the boy up by his legs, shakes him uh, like this to get anything out of his pockets. Literally, Pip's world turns upside down, and he is born into being as Pip, a frightened young boy who realizes there's a vicious world out there. And so all three of these things sort of came together for me where I thought, wow, Furnace Creek could be my cemetery scene for some pivotal moment in a character's coming into terms with himself and his relationship with the world as a youngster moving into a new phrase, phase, excuse me, of identity. Uh, and so almost to me, immediately, I, my mind started thinking about what would be a more contemporary version of the Pip story? And of course, I went to my own Southern past and roots to create the your background uh, for telling this novel. Uh, so that was the sort of moment where everything came together to then um, use Dickens' frame, at least as the launching point, to look at those issues that um, pervaded the 60s and 70s for all of us growing up then. Uh, if we were Southerners, in particular, questions of race and belonging, home, and the desire to escape from home. Uh, the uh, sexual revolution that was on the horizons, uh, the, the sort of hippie culture revolution, the protest against the Vietnam War. Uh, this was a time of, in our eyes, real revolution. Uh, uh, you know, the shakeup of the system, we thought. And I just thought, what a perfect time to try to capture a young person who's struggling for his, to find his place in the world, his identity, um, yet comes into quote unquote expectations uh, that seem to bolster his innermost dreams uh, to happen. Uh, so th those are those are the origins. Uh, that's you know the first links that started this whole story going. Um, would this be an appropriate point to maybe read from the opening scene, Matthew? Please do, please do, Joseph. I'll wet my throat here. Um, one thing I want to say about the novel for anyone out there who's suddenly thinking I don't want to read a pseudo Victorian novel written, you know. Uh, now, Dickens did it well, if I do it better, is I think, I hope that this novel stands on its own two feet. If you happen to know Dickens, great, but it's its own story. Um, nevertheless, I, for those of you in the know, I would say that while Pip in his graveyard seems maybe six years old, we're talking about 1820s, 1830s, uh, when the criminal mag, which happens upon him on a Christmas Eve, my character Newt is 13 and unlike rather innocent, Pip is filled with hormonal turbulence, shall we say, as he seeks out his private tryst in the woods by Furnace Creek on July the 4th, a sort of another pivotal, our American holiday of note. Uh, in, the, in 1965. <clears throat> First person, chapter one, bad day at Furnace Creek, and I'll just read an abbreviated version of about four pages. For years, I didn't realize why it was called Furnace Creek, even though I've been uncovering bullets in the vicinity ever since I was old enough to explore the creek on my own. The bullets in question were misshapen slugs of Confederate vintage, buried in the flinty soil, scattered in the underbrush, and sometimes wedged between the rough-hewn slabs that made up the sides of that rocky mound built on the steep embankment overlooking the creek. That was the furnace. 
a towering outdoor stone oven in which molten lead had once been shaped into the slugs we kids showed off whenever we unearthed them from their recesses 100 years later. It was one of countless Civil War relics that haunted the mountains and hills of Franklin County. Reminders of a cause that long since vanquished stubbornly refused to vanish. But to my young fancy, that blackened furnace hidden in the woods on the edge of town looked more Egyptian than Confederate. It loomed in my childish imagination as a four-sided pyramid whose top had been whacked off 12 feet above ground. And whacked off was the fine art I learned there the summer of 1965, lying prone on those grim stones as Furnace Creek, taking its name from this landmark, churned and chortled through the forested landscape surrounding my perch. In that initial onslaught of adolescence, as I was coming into my first and most vivid impressions of a wider world lying in wait just beyond the horizons of my vision, I had found a haven for my solitary vice, so recently earned and so eagerly cultivated on top of that old relic. Stretched out on its summit and hidden by a shroud of greenery, visible only to the unquiet jays hopping from branch to branch overhead, I found a refuge from the domestic surveillance that attended every creaking bed spring or locked bathroom door in my parents' well-regulated house. Something I bet some of y'all remember. Uh, uh, oh my God, did I lock the bathroom door or not? Uh, here, dappled in the sunlight that purified the act whose pleasure even then was obscurely related to the guilty suspicion that I ought not to be doing what I so obviously wanted to do, I learned to bring myself to delirium with strokes as sinuous as those summer days of twilight were long. How vividly I still remember the day I first came into a sense of my place in the world. My place, that is, as something more culpable than a 13-year-old boy whose greatest misdeed to date had been uh, neglecting his nightly prayers. I was lying atop the furnace that particularly blazing and humid July afternoon, shirtless and the elastic waistband of my shorts pushed to my knees. My vision had gone white from staring at the sun overhead. And just as my pent up labors verged on completion, a dark fist poured down my chest, harassing voice demanded, give me your name boy quick. And my world turned upside down. I levitated in shock. The very instant a loop of liquid unspooled from deep in my gut and splattered the hand that clamped down so fiercely on my chest. Before I had time to react to the strong thinkers pinioned me in place, the interloper had climbed higher up the mound. So she, I now saw, was a she, a powerfully built woman sweating even more mightily than myself, loomed over me, eclipsing the overhead sun. So intent was she on fixing me with her stare that she didn't notice, or at least notice enough to care, the milky ribbon clouding her walnut brown fingers and spectacularly shaped vermilion painted nails. At the instant she identified me, I recognized her, Zithra Jackson Brown, the next door maid up to last year. Well, I'll be by the Jesus, she said, and I don't think I was imagining the gloating sound in her voice broken by wheezing gas as she tried to catch her breath. Here I am looking for a place to squirrel away. And what do I find? Newt Seward the deacon's boy, abusing himself like he ain't never heard tell the wages of sin. It'd be a pity, Lord save your soul, if word got out on how you've been wasting your seed. At which point she registered the inopportune moment at which she had interrupted my raptures by wiping her soiled hand on the shapeless blue smock she wore. I was too terrified to reply. As her free hand ground my shoulder blade into the sharp rock surface, 
Zithra Jackson Brown smiled a gold-capped smile that was anything but friendly. And it would be a crying shame if folks was to hear how you forced poor old Zithra to partake of your bad habits, wouldn't it now? You daren't. Oh, yes, I dare say I would. And it ain't the only shameful thing old Zithra knows about you. Oh, yes, Mr. Goody-Two-Shoes, I done seen into your bedroom window when you and your friends... Whereupon she leaned forward and hissed into my ear her version of the despicable act she had espied from her observation post, post on our neighbor's second floor. On an afternoon, I'd conveniently erased from memory. I swear to God, the world is about to learn all the evils you've been up to unless you do exactly as I tell you. The fruits of her surveillance terrified, petrified me. All I could do was blurt out, what do you want from me? I want you to pull your pants up over your butt crack and hide you at home like the devil is riding your back. I know all you white folks is leaving for the fireworks soon. Remember, it's the 4th of July. And when your family takes off, you gotta find reason to stay behind or else there'll be your life to pay. I've forgotten that this memorable day in my dawning awareness of my beleaguered place in the universe was the 4th of July. Within the hour, the whole neighborhood would be would load picnic campers, lawn chairs, and swim gear into their station wagons and head to Bonner Lake for our town's Independence Day festivities. I realized with a jolt of dismay how late I was, was in returning home. I lost track of time and service to my solitary vices. But the trouble I was going to be in for being late was nothing I sensed. There was trouble presently looming over my head in the form of Zephyr Jackson Brown, naturally strong hands, until she had finished relating the criminal deeds I must execute when I was alone at home. At which point Zither spells out a laundry list of things he needs to steal from his house and from the judge's house where she used to work next year that is going to provide her with the black male material that will get her out of Virginia and indeed out of the country. But she, she, she goes through a few more threats. Newt's a little more terrified when she winds up. I'll be waiting right here, Mr. Newt Seward, the deacon's son. And I give you to sunset to get back here. You figure out how to do what I told you by then, or my spies will let me know. If you let me down, just watch me scream bloody murder to the world. Whereupon, she wheezed a diabolical laugh whose low register seemed destined to call the high heavens into doubt. Don't I know something about that, Mr. Newt? Things you never want to know. She laughed again, get rasping for breath. Lord of mercy, what a day. I could hardly agree more as I took my departure. Scrambling down the mound and tearing my way to a field cause. Not too soon, the sound of her heavy breathing was lost in the slurps and trills of Furnace Creek as it coursed down its rocky bed, singing the same breeze song to which my forebears had cast unfriendly bullets in another world, another time. So that's the first segment I wanted to read to you. Uh, Matthew, while you're thinking if there's anything you want to pick up on right now before I go on, I'm going to share the screen for just a second and show you guys what the actual furnace looks looks like. I went back again like three weekends ago. Uh, and what's amazing, usually in our childhood, things that seem impossibly large turn out to be very diminutive and small and re-encountering them. In this case, the furnace turned out to be even larger than I remembered. Uh, I think I you know, have it being about 12 feet high here. Uh, now the woods have all been cleared out. This is sort of like a little park now. Uh, so it was nothing like this growing up, but you see the furnace and you can see a bit of the opening to the, uh, the arched opening to the um, left of the structure. But you see, it's a good, like, I would say 18, 20 feet there. And the second shot shows how from the rear, you do have 
uh, room to access it. You're not gonna fall from 20 feet, just from 10 feet or so if you, if you try to crawl up it. Um, but what's still remarkable to me to think about is that it was that contrast of you know, playing quote unquote innocently on something like this. It's so evocative of history, uh, but unmarked as such. And I was bemused, started reading some of the first endorsements to the novel or first reviews about the degree to which people were calling the Southern Gothic. Uh, because to, in my mind, as somebody studying the novel, the genre, for me, Gothic is the grand British tradition and haunted castles and maidens locked away and villainous henchmen and things like that. Uh, mysteries of the Udolpho to Wuthering Heights to whatever, uh, to Frankenstein. Uh, but of course, then with, you know, just took me a second, like, but of course, there is a Southern Gothic tradition. That's, that, uh, I mean, you could trace it back to Harriet Beecher Stowe, but it certainly is there in Faulkner, it's there in Flannery O'Connor, uh, Carson McCullers, uh, it's there in the, the, the panoply of grotesque, I would say, that sort of inhabits Southern, Southern fiction on one level, uh, eccentrics, oddities, the things that don't fit a sort of normative, um, sort of realistic frame, uh, coupled with that storytelling loquacious element of Southern fiction, which always veers on the not quite truthful. So, you know, our storytelling is not exactly, it's always stretching the truth, the boundaries of truth, which of course Gothic does. But more pertinently, uh, we who have grown up in the South bear our own ghosts. We're haunted by a history that for many generations refused to let go, that sort of sense of the defeated, the unfairly defeated South uh, and, uh, for some people. And beyond that, of course, the even darker ghost of the legacy of slavery. Uh, all that epitomized for me in the furnace, which was actually casting the bullets that kept this war going uh, uh, and in succession, of course, being linked to the, 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 the evils of the institution of slavery, race relations that have come down through the to this day. Joe, you don't let your characters flinch from that legacy. And as an historian myself and someone who's taught Southern history, I was, I admired the way that your characters grapple with the very real ways that racism transforms their lives, guides their lives, limits their opportunities, or gives them opportunities perhaps that they don't deserve. And I'm thinking of, you know, two of your your characters in particular, Samson and Newt, and their relationship and the ways that their lives go in part, in large part, because of the color of their skin and not because of their innate talents. Um, on the other hand, you do something that I found deeply moving in this book, which is that you, you have these twists, you have these, these moments where things are turned on their head. For example, Zithra Brown is, um, I won't give away your your endings, I promise. But she turns out to have many interesting developments in her life. She's not a cartoon. She ends up becoming a remarkably different person who travels the world. I don't think that's given away much. Um, and you have a kind of optimism in your story in which this lonely, onanistic young boy, this young man who loves himself and is sort of self-pleasuring, ends up creating this beautiful, loving family, being a part of, accepting that he is a part of this beautiful family where you end this novel. So, you know, how did you decide to do that, to move from, I would almost say the easy story, which is tragedy and despair, which there is plenty of in American history and Southern history, to this story about, it's not redemption, it's more than that. It's more like grappling with an acceptance and attempting to transcend. How did you decide to make this a, a story about joy as well as sadness? I'm I'm being overly optimistic. And if anything, I would, you know, my fear would be that that interferes with a more realistic, gritty assessment of things. But you make me feel that I have also attacked, uh, tackled that grittiness. And so it's not a falsely earned uh, sentiment. Uh, and if anyone, if there is hope among the sort of soberness 
of the novel. I throughout, I, I mean, once I created, say, Zithra, um, and then many other characters that had an origin in the Dickens plot. I mean, it's ironic, his title is Great Expectations, and of course he is undermining expectations when they're based on uh, prideful or false values and stuff. But I wanted to keep pulling expectations out from my readers who might, knowing Dickens, expect certain developments. And what I try to do with all characters and to my mind, Zithra most spectacularly is make their lives transformative where they go unexpected places. Uh, and in doing so, they defy you know, societal expectations but in a way that still seems, I think, plausible. Uh, and I won't say much more about Zithra except that she does make a spectacular re-entrance in the novel. In some ways, I would say, She's the closest to an author figure in her ability to conjure up possibilities out of any situation. Uh, she, she creates her reality where she goes, she makes it happen. She re keeps rewriting the plot. Um, but it happens in minor ways too. My newt's mother uh, initially seems rather like Mrs. Joe in Great Expectations. She's the sort of harried housewife, has it seems to be at odds with Newt. She goes on rampages uh, and seems a bit of a shrew. But I make that, you know, I try then to back up and give that a story we've learned belatedly that catapults her into the closest to, I guess, sort of like a proto-feminist uh, figure in the novel by the end where she becomes mayor of the town and things like that. So uh, nobody quite conforms to the template of what we might expect. But I guess that's rooted a bit in my sense of one, how life really is and a, a, tr a truth that sometimes is not recognized about the South. I have my own mixed feelings about the South and growing up there and I, you know, I, the title of the last Thomas Wolfe novel, You Can't Go Home Again could be my I guess, kind of motto. Although I make my character Newt go home again, which I find very interesting. Uh, but um, I, I guess what I was going to say is that, and this is something that has so pleasantly surprised me each time I return to Statesville, is I realize in some, in its own way, how race relationships there have just moved on. And I'm sure there's still problems. I know there's bigotry. I know there's you know, we know that about, but everywhere in the nation, in the world, but there are ways in which amelioration I see happening on the micro level amongst people in that town that it's almost more, it's almost like we're all small towners who've chosen a way of life. It's us, black and white and brown against the larger metro world out there that thinks they know better. So it's a different division than the one sometimes people impose where they would expect a certain kind of dynamic still uh, dominated by race, where I would venture it's probably dominated more by sometimes by class and by a, you know, city country kind of thing. Uh, and so I, I try to you know, whatever I'm writing about, give credit to the possibilities for depth of relations that could develop and uh, psychological complexity that breaks stereotypes. Um, I don't know if that's a good answer or a satisfactory answer or not. You're, you're making me really think about something. Well, your your comments and, and the novel itself um, do make me wonder about this, you know, you made a decision to work from Dickens's Great Expectations, and that could be freeing. Um, it could also become a limitation or a difficulty to contend with. And I wonder if you um, want to speak to that. Did you, did you find at moments that this was a template or a pattern that would keep you going? Or did you ever run into moments where it just didn't work at all? Where the, the structure that oh, yeah. Dickens adopted just didn't work for you? Uh, a, a great, great question. Um, for me, in search of the motivation to get started, it was the perfect 
instance of here's a way to get going and allow my imagination to create, create new to character and the initial situation of being beset, feeling guilt and shame, a couple of years later coming into a certain kind of expectations uh, and then the story takes off. Uh, but that said, you know, once I had the template, I did have to find how to earn it, one, and then make it my own. And I think there was a point, probably a third of the way in the novel, where that became more of, you know, something I was thinking about, how to deal with this. And part of it was that the novel simply began to grow on its own. And characters began to have their own interactions aside from any roots with those interactions in Dickens. And my imagination just followed them. And um, while it's true that on some level, parts of the Dickensian template last till the end, uh, you could even say that Newt's adventures in Europe, which you know about because you've read the novel, have a vague analog in that's in the latter part of the novel that Newt in shouldering others burns, um, he comes into his own agency rather than being someone acted upon, which is very much what Pip has to learn to do vis-a-vis -vis Magwitch. So there is still the template there, but it's by now it's a, I think it's a, a totally different novel with its own subplots uh, that are what's rising from the past to dictate the action and all. Um, the, I think the biggest, one of the most interesting things in terms of breaking from the template was learning how to do a first person voice because I wanted to have that first person retrospection that Dickens is so famous for, uh, where Pip every now and then will realize he's narrating from a point way in the distant future, looking back with sort of somber sadness at this, but then we'll get right into it where you feel like you're with the kid, Pip, you know, back up. I wanted that accordion effect, but I think in my first draft, it was distracting from a kind of involvement that contemporary events and novels generally claim. And this is where actually it was Viet Nguyen gave me my most trenchant advice. He really loved the first draft, respect the voice at exactly those moments and scenes where a contemporary narrative would engage him right on. And I realized that most of those moments were about sex. So I narrate sex from a retrospective, looking back on it rather than the writing from inside the scene because I was still embarrassed to do that. I guess that was the Victorian part of me that I had to break away from. Uh, and just say, okay, I'm going to do it. You know, whatever kind of whatever is happening here, I've got to be there and I've got to imagine it and I've got to make it real. I can't just have it as, you know, afterthoughts. Well, that experience happened and it left me feeling so-and-so, which a, a pip would have done because in Victorian, you know, neurotology, you just, you can't be explicit about those moments. Uh, and so that was a very freeing moment to realize, yes, you can still use retrospection, but you got to be careful about how you're doing it. I think the other thing that I really got is a gift from Dickens getting to write a novel that moves at a kind of storytelling pace. Um, many people said it's a quick read, but it's also kind of leisurely read because it's anecdotal at times. It goes from humorous moments uh, to uh, introspective ones from huge crowd scenes to quieter moments in a very kind of Dickensian way of including trying to include a panorama of the whole world, this little south of this one county. Uh, that similarity between a southern vernacular and way of and sort of episodic, serialized way of letting a story go on and on, hooking your interest, not letting you go, but making you want more, uh, that ties, you know, 20th century southern writing and Dickens write together their reflections in some ways of each other in terms of how they use narrative strategically uh, in a way that allows you a kind of largesse, even, even a, 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 against the grain of a lot of contemporary writing, which is the terse, you know, 200 page novel. Um, so gains and limitations, I think, come with using a model like this and really be interesting for some critics someday to line up all of us who have tried to do this and sort of measure the, 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 uh, 
the moments of, you know, success. Because you, I think success comes when you break through, obviously, the formula and make people forget, even if they knew about Pip, forget that altogether and just think about Newt, what's going to happen to him? Why is he doing this kind of thing? Joe, we are graced with a question from Don Solomon who is, uh, of course, a ringer in that he knows your work very well. And he's asking a question that I had also thought about, you and I had thought about a little bit beforehand, which is about the relationship between scholarly writing and fiction. So Don, Don's question is, he says that you have explored the interplay between traditions of representation and subversive realities in your scholarship, too. Can you talk a little bit about fiction, about how fiction offers ways to examine disruption differently? So you've done this work in your scholarly work, he's observing, and, and also in your fiction, but these are different, different forms. Yeah, well, uh, Don, thank you for the question. Uh, and for the fact that you even remember what my scholarship was about. Uh, and it is true. Yeah, yeah, my first book was called Tradition, Counter Tradition. And I, since that's what I'm doing with this, I guess, Tradition Dickens and Encounter Tradition it, by querying it and making it, you know, this plot of a youth, ex, you know, exploring his sexuality uh, in the 1960s and 70s in a way that opens it to kinds of subversion of form as well as reality. That would go back to Robert New Newman's question about the Buildings Roman tradition, where it is kind of Buildings Roman, but it isn't just a coming of age uh, story. It subverts it by inserting other genres along the way. And uh, like you said, Matthew, <clears throat> I think ending up with, like you said, this kind of reformulated family at the end, that to me is the most subversive part of the novel, of, if anything subversive. The joy is subversive, that there is this sort of mitigated regaining of something and that people can just come together for a moment. Um, but how does fiction offer ways to examine disruption differently, Don? Um, I guess it's through the filter, I mean, what can I say, of the imagination, um, the immediacy with which representation of creating a world allows us to feel the effects of subversions that we might not even realize are, are subversions because we're following the, 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 the experience of the character with identified with perhaps that then brings us to a place where we realize because we're still with the character that we ourselves are beginning to see the world a little bit differently. Uh, scholarship moves argumentatively. Um, and I, I mean, a lot of people ask me, well, Joe, how did you ever get from scholarship to fiction? They're such different beasts. One is proving a point, the other is creating a world that people will buy into, whatever kind of world, whether it's sci-fi or realism that you're creating. For me, that's never been so much of a problem because I spent the first, well, up to the time I started the third grade, I started writing novels, Don, so I got this really early experience. Uh, it was part of my nerdy uh, I guess, sissy boy, Southern self, where I would sit in the bedroom and, and I would just start writing novels. And I did it all the way up to going to college. And then I took several creative writing classes. I studied with Reynolds Price at Duke. Uh, and of course, then it was the come to Jesus moment of like, what do I do with the rest of my life? And realized, oh, this stuff is crap. I'm going to find a profession. And since I like literature, well, I like studying it. So I'd go to grad school. And, but I had that deep rootedness in the experience of, of narrative, not just as something to study, but as something I lived through quite literally as a kid. It was my lifeblood to sit there, if not reading, writing fiction. Uh, I'd like to think that some of that narrative flow entered into my scholarship, so it's a little less dry than some scholars work. Uh, but still, uh, I would say fiction overall, and I, all my peers and academics will groan at this, but <laughs> I think, you know, I think our scholarly work is all well and good and I'm glad we do it. And it's often brilliant, mind shattering, uh, does create paradigms that help us rethink the future. But I doubt if they have very much effect, whereas, or at least immediate effect, whereas a novel, 
a good novel can blow a lot of people's into you know minds apart and really put them in another place. A good poem. I've seen still like we're still finding the battles of what a term means, whereas the music out there is sort of doing the work uh, often. And so I'm not casting my allegiance with one over the other. I'm still going to finish a scholarly project. Uh, but maybe part of my what you called hopefulness, Matthew, comes from my, I've always felt that fiction, and some people think this is a naive point of view, but it's sort of my Bakhtinian sense of how, how novelization works, that it demands the participation in a multi-mediated world of words, perspectives, clashing realities that gives us, gives us that living quality that places us in life in a situation of dialogue where whatever's getting thrown out there is getting thrown back at us if we're a, even a decent reader or listener or auditor in a play say uh, so that participatory element that creative writing enacts within the participant's mind that extends the work creative work it has to be extended into the minds of the others it's a very wolfian kind of thing that you know all published work is, are, is the, are, everything is an unwritten novel until the readers write it mm -hmm. uh and i'm not sure that same dynamic works with those who read scholarship mm -hmm. i wish it did i guess but i'm not sure it does i mean to your point this is not a book that i could skim i was absolutely in there and and you know um I worried about Newt. I feared for him. I feared wow. for him in the world he lived in. I, I sensed an impending tragedy in his life. I could sense that loss was going to be a part of his life over and over. I feared that he would never be honest and acknowledge who he really was. And you allowed him to get what he thought he wanted, which turned out not to be what he wanted at all. And then to blunder and to bravely make his way into a, a really wonderful life and i found that um i found that beautiful Which so i guess you for me <laughs> that was wonderful you've, you've got marvelous reviews on the back of this oh, no, book i'll, no, I'll put that you so you so epitomize what you know i would want one to feel with newt uh and fear for newt because he had i mean he harbors a lot of trauma and shame a sense of criminality a, a sense of like everybody you know what's my worth in the world particularly when you're surrounded by people who seem to have everything within the reach of their fingertips like marky and mary joe the two characters he falls in love with um and um there is it's not untragic but within you know some of his more somber realizations and his sense and acceptance of loss he comes to the place that i guess all of us strive to come to which is not just a acceptance of it but a way of moving on and picking up the pieces and actually finding joy not in the moment and like you know, without giving away things he unexpectedly comes into a profession that means something profoundly to him uh, that he wouldn't have gotten to without his experiences. Yeah, he grows up and he grows into uh, a person who is freer than he was. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's quite, it's quite wonderful. Um, Joe, do you have anything else you want to read to us from the book? I'm looking at our clock and thinking we have 12 minutes, which is just, a, you know, ticking away. I know. Um, Let's see. Well, yeah, I'll just read maybe, I'm going to cut a four-page section down to maybe two pages, just to introduce two other characters. Um, when Bob, in a small town, which vastly appeals to him, of arranging the library collection of this eccentric old bachelor um, who lives in a crumbly mansion talk about southern gothic on the edge of town someone someone whose family made its fortune making furniture uh 
uh, ran a sawmill on Furnace Creek, as a matter of fact. And this man, he's right out of Truman Capote, if you want to stereotype him in a way, uh, as a sort of queer mentor to our 16-year-old Newt, uh, who both loves them and is manipulating them. Uh, kind of my version of a Miss Havisham with a sort of queer Truman Capote-esque twist, I guess, uh, who means less ill than Miss Havisham. But it so happens that uh, Mr. Armistead has two wards, not just one ward, Estella and Great Expectation, but twins, Marky and Mary Jo, kids who have been in boarding school abroad, are beautiful, snobbish, worldly, and appeal to everything that wets Newt's desires and ambitions and makes him feel inferior at the same time. Um, yeah, I'm gonna read this scene where they're getting stoned for the first time. They're, oh, what happens is, and I'm use all my 12 minutes here summarizing the plot. It, what happens is that the, uh, Mr. Mr. Julian Armistead, the old man, has not, not only hired Newt to organize the library, but when he sees how he and the twins are more or less getting along, he hires them to come and play with, entertain the twins. Uh, they spend all their days at the pool, the cover of the book is a great visual sort of representation of that. If they're not at the pool, they're out at the waterfall in the country, always around water. In the evenings, they spend it on the third floor of this old mansion, which is where all the junk furniture goes. Everything is falling apart. That's their eerie. It's sort of like his eerie. The first of the novel is on top of the rocks all alone. Now it's an eerie he shares with two. And this is the moment when the twins first get them stoned, very 60s. It was in this attic eerie, listening to music late one June afternoon, evening, that the twins got me stoned for the first time. The two of them delighted in facilitating my corruption, instructing me to lie down on the pillows I'd piled on the floor and ride the waves of music. We rolled on and off the cushions and laughed because everything we said seemed hysterically funny as we passed the J back and forth. And each time their saliva moistened fingertips brushed against mine, I felt my nerve endings on the verge of exploding in sensual ecstasy. We were buzzed the evening I learned about the accident that killed their parents. We were listening to an old Elvis Presley album when Marky remarked out of nowhere, I wonder if that was a deliberate time when Marky remarked, out of nowhere that the song Good Luck Charm had been playing on the car radio that afternoon, Mr. Sumner, driving the family car to their summer home on the Cape, slammed the brakes to avoid a Jeep that had charged through an approaching intersection. The surfboard resting on the top of the luggage in the rear of the station wagon had shot forward with the ferocity of an Olympian's javelin hitting Mr. Sumner the small of the neck and snapping his spinal cord instantly. The car careened to a telephone pole and Mrs. Sumner's body had sailed through the shattered windshield like a frightened pigeon taken flight. Unlike her husband who died instantly, she lingered three weeks. A glass shard having pierced her frontal lobe before she gave up the ghost and left the twins orphans. The world that hitherto known ended in a second. Shit, I said, with a virgin pothead's acuity. Shit happens, Marky replied. Who's to say any of us are long for this world? He inhaled another toke. Live for the moment, dudes. Mary Jo reached across me to hug her brother, which soon became a group hug. We lapsed into silence listening to the music. A few evenings later, long after the lights on the first two floors had dimmed, the twins again spoke of their parents. We lay on the unbraiding oval rug, propped against cushions and each other. I reclined against a battered Ottoman footrest opposite Mary Jo, lazily gazing on as she slipped her arms 
up the back of Marky's polo shirt and massaged his shoulders. I imagined him purring, content as a cat, under Mary Jo's feathery touch. Light against dark, she murmured, looking across his shoulders and pointing at my darkly tanned, outstretched bare legs, covered with fine, curly blonde hair that shimmered in the golden candlelight. Turning our newt into a Manichaean allegory, Marky asked. He rolled up his trouser leg and without ceremony, draped his bare left knee against my allegorical limb. The warmth of his bare calf against mine was palpable. Eventually, the twins changed positions so that now she lay on her side in front of him. It was his turn to reach under her darkly shimmering hair and caress his neck. I continued to watch. Uh, and the episode goes on with um, Newt finding out more about ways in which Mr. Sumner, the father, has failed the twins, and particularly Mary Jo, in a way that's left her scarred for life, a really traumatic event. Uh, that then is followed by the trip to the Cape that where both parents die in the car wreck. Um, and the chapter ends. The Cape Cod vacation was a la last ditch effort by their parents to put a good face on their rotten marriage. The twins were so happy to be together that they temporarily forgave both parents their trespasses. Then Marky, both are 11 at this point, Marky had grown sleepy in the back seat put his head in Mary Jo's lap, and his elbows sang his charmed heart to pieces. Luck ran out for the Sumner parents. In an instant, I forgave them their snobberies, their pride, their ability to make me feel unworthy. My heart flowed out toward the twins in a wave of compassion, in a wave of compassion. And like the banks of the Nile, when the spring floods recede, love blossomed in the fertile loam that filled the space between. And I feel like this moment paired with the first in that they're both these sort of like uppermost on top of the rocks and top of the attic, Newt alone and Newt alone, learning about both self-pleasure and terror at the external world. And in this scene, being with the two twins who make them feel unworthy, who make them feel an other in many ways. But at this instance, he reaches with love. He connects. Uh, he feels this bond that uh, takes him into sort of a community, however temporarily with the two. Um, are there any more questions from our audience out there? There are not, but I would make a comment about that remarkable selection you just chose, which is that you, you move from masturbation and drug use to decapitation by surfboards to humor and tragedy in that same scene. And the whole book is like that, Joe. It's just wonderfully entertaining, while at the same time, it strives for that connection, that empathy that you just had Newt achieve in that moment, that Newt achieves empathy from, from listening to and, and really appreciating these two people. That's, a, that's, I think, in many ways, a great contribution in this book, is that we, we have empathy for people. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, I think it, one hates to you know, sound preachy, but if there's anything the world needs more of right now... <laughs> <laughs> empathy and listening and not judging too quickly in advance. Newt is guilty many times of that, of judging, but um, his lesson is, I think, to allow his world to increase by accepting, accepting all the differences and disparities that exist out there and taking the, you know, the, the bad with the good, the good with the bad. But I, I, I'm, I'm glad that you see that as a good example of what I tried to do, and this is very Dickensian, but I hope it's Joe Boonian too, is to be rally funny and yet be deadly serious back to back. Um, 
have the two emotions always going. I think you succeeded. And I say that as, as, a, as a reader. <clears throat> and I hope people, I hope people will, will rush out and pick up this book if they haven't already. And it is a, it's a truly a wonderful contribution. Um, and, and I'd like to say thank you, Joe. And thank you for joining us tonight and sharing this work with us. Okay, and thanks, thanks. And thanks especially for sharing this mixture uh, that you have given the center of both scholarly work and also your fiction work. So thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, people out there, if anyone listen, is listening to this now or in the future and has questions to ask, absolutely let me know. I've been lately getting invited to book club group things so where people want to read Great Expectations and this. So like I, I'll zoom in. I'm happy to join any conversation uh, and continue all of this. So thank you, Matthew, for this opportunity. Well, well, thank you, Joe. And thanks to all of you who've been watching and participating in the discussion. You may also visit nationalhumanitiescenter.org to discover more about the center's work and the opportunities it offers to explore the humanities. Good evening, everyone, and stay well. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of Discovery and Inspiration. If you would like to view the original video recording of this or other humanities-related events, you can find them on the National Humanities Center's channel on YouTube. You can also find episodes of Discovery and Inspiration on SoundCloud or by visiting us at nationalhumanitiescenter.org.